Opinions expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. Let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times, if it's time, rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up. When famine claims millions, when justice gives blind eyes to billions, when the Lord's anger is no longer feared, if his protection is gone and your enemies are near, if you've seen the seas spill over and the mountains shake, break, and fall, if the moon ever turns blood red and you can't see the sun at all, rise up, no matter if the prize is high in the skies. Peace and welcome to New Abolitionist Radio on the Black Talk Radio Network, a program that seeks to educate in Form and agitate an issue of 21st century legalized slavery. Hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parthas and Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking as it is allowed through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, along with projects and people who help combat it. This is our February 21st, 2018 broadcast in our sixth season. My apologies for missing last week. As some may know, I was speaking at the wake of my murdered brother, mentee, and comrade, Muyadeen de Baja. On and near this day in history, Malcolm X was assassinated on February 21st, 1965. Our abolitionist in profile this week is William Cooper Nell, 1816 to 1874. We'll read his speech on the power of literacy. In the segment, For Freedom's Sake, A History of Rebellion, we will remember the Berbice Uprising of February 23, 1763. Our writer of the 21st Century Underground Railroad is 81-year-old Paul Gatling, who on May 2, 2016, was fully exonerated 52 years after being wrongfully convicted for murder. Gatling spent nine years in prison for the murder of Lawrence Rothbard, a Brooklyn artist in Crown Heights home, and received a reduced sentence thanks to the Legal Aid Society, but remained a convicted murderer for, the, for most of his life. In May of 2016, Gatling was exonerated by a Brooklyn judge at the request of a prosecutor. As usual, we'll dissect and disseminate current news and events related to the 13th Amendment slavery from the perspectives of slavery abolitionists. The unconstitutional bail system, a new sagging pants law in South Carolina is proposed. A call for the National Guard to man prisons has been made by legislators in North Carolina. The ongoing madness that is the slave catchers of Baltimore. A revisit of the kids for cash case. And the missing link to the 13th Amendment narrative has been found. All that and more tonight. You got a question or a comment? You can call in at 704 802 5026. You can chat with us and others by logging in 
at uberconference.com slash blacktalkradionetwork. Once again, I'm Max Parthas. It's good to, be, good to be back here, Scotty. What's happening, brother? Yeah, it's good to see you back in the normal routine of disseminating this very important uh, information. When I, I say that like you only do it <laughs> from 8 to 10 on Black Talk Radio Network, but you constantly engaging in the information warfare so um but it's good to be back on air with you because i do know how brother the baja's um murder affected you and you know so it's 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 understandable you know that you would not be on last week and i hope that you and his family are on your way to healing and anyone who has any knowledge whatsoever uh, about this murder, um, y'all need to come forward. And I'll leave it, leave it at that. The last, Scotty, the last, I don't know, going on three years has been some of the most uh, intense in my life. Like, we have been through some things. And then to have one of my mentees murdered just recently uh, kind of set it off. So I have to apologize in advance if I say anything that's just out there or crazy because I'm going through full-blown depression mode at this point and uh it's not from the circumstances it's medical condition so if I you know get a little bit nuts I'm sorry in advance we got a hell of a lineup of stories and uh things to discuss today uh one that I'm excited to talk about it's a little lengthy and I'm going to try to shorten it but as I think I found the missing link in regards to how and why the 13th Amendment was instituted as we know it today. Uh, when you say uh, found that, it in, a, in a book. <laughs> Imagine that, found it in a book. Hey, I found it in a book, yes? When you say that, though, Max, we, the way you said that, I guess some would think that implies that we don't know the reason for it, but of course, the reason was to continue slavery, just a reset of slavery. It certainly was not to abolish it, but I'm very interested to hear what you read in this book. Right. That's the easy answer, Scotty. And you and I and everybody who listens to this program already know that. But what I was looking for was discourse on the 13th Amendment itself by the legislators at the time who were either for or opposed to it. And uh, much of that information has literally been uh, hidden away. Uh, so I was surprised to find this uh, healthy discourse on why the 13th Amendment was insti- uh, put in, instituted and uh, what their reasoning for it was. So with this in hand, you could literally just show them and say, here, this is why they did it. And they were there at the time telling you why they did it. Now, <laughs> so I don't, it's another tool in our belt. I don't know... Um if you included this in your stories, because there's just so many stories out there, no way to pack them all into two hours. Uh, but you do pack them into them threads, though, for the planet page and btrcommunity.com. So uh, when Max talks about the cutting room floor, that's one of the places uh, that you can find uh, those stories we didn't get to share. But I thought it was pretty interesting that you had U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions being given the Lincoln Award by a Pennsylvania group called the Lincoln Union or or whatever. And first, Lincoln was a racist, so let me just put that out there right now. So, And they just gave a Lincoln Award to another suspected racist, Jeff Sessions. 
But the topic of slavery, you know, I obviously in in um, Jeff Sessions said that the reason for the Civil War was slavery, human trafficking, and he the way he framed it, he said, "I hate to you know say that to my peoples." I mean, this dude's still thinking like you know people talk about America being divided. This dude is. Is still, you know, like he willing to uh, participate in another uh, uh, insurrection or, or secession and, and whatnot. He talking about my people, but he said, I hate to break it to my people, but the war was over slavery. It wasn't over contracts. It wasn't over uh, uh, something to do with agriculture. It wasn't over industrialism. No, it was over human trafficking and he said it was a scourge that had to be eliminated but of course you know he is still perpetrating the myth along with this organization in Philadelphia that the 13th amendment actually abolished slavery when it didn't did you happen to catch that no Scotty I did not catch that and uh, I'm glad that you brought it up it does sound very ironic and to be honest with you it is fitting Uh, the lead slave catcher, uh, the white supremacist known as Jeff Sessions, who was in charge of the Department of Justice, just received an award called the Lincoln Award, uh, which is from a man who himself was a racist white supremacist and who literally betrayed all black people throughout history by his decision. All abolitionists, all victims of slavery, all victims of segregation. The world. Because a lot of Europeans uh, lost their lives on that battlefield for abolition too, you know? So it, it affected, so he betrayed the entire Union side, man, and that's why, and some people might find it shocking for me to say, but I'm not a shock jock. I just simply sometimes speak plainly. And as treasonous, that was an act of treason what he did in signing the 13th Amendment into law, knowing as a lawyer, as a constitutional lawyer, that it did not abolish slavery, and he full well knew he had he you know he, he wasn't no dummy that what the South was going to do with that, except as punishment for crime clause. He knew what was going to happen. You know, he actually wanted. I was reading a little bit about how Liberia was founded today, um, and so. He was certainly uh, for shipping all black folks, whether they had been born here, third generation born here, shipping them off to Africa, you know, not even giving them the choice. And that's 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 well documented in his writing. So, again, you know, just how we continue to honor people uh, who are dishonorable and not worth honoring. If we tell the truth about them, but I always said in his act of treason, uh, John Wills Booth did the union a favor. He did the troops a favor by putting a bullet in the back of his head. Because what he did was straight up treason, betrayal, and which the penalty usually is death in every nation. Well, you're you're right, Scotty, about that. And we see examples of that uh glorifying people who were actually uh, the most wicked of people this country has ever seen in the statues and imagery all across America that many people have been fighting to remove uh, where they're glorifying slave catchers and uh, genocidal maniacs and some of the most uh, terrible people 
that this uh, world has ever seen, literally, with 20-foot statues and big photos across the you know, courthouse walls and so on and so forth. So, yeah. And, you know, you mentioned the cutting room floor, Scotty. Uh, I have been, since we've been doing this program, I have been trying to make it my business to document history in our archives. So at some point in the future, people want to know what was going on during that particular period, that week, that day, whatever it may be, they can find that in New Abolitionist Radio. Even if we didn't talk about that particular issue, it is documented in our archives. At some point, I'd like to see us uh, take our three or four different archive sources and put them together. Like uh, right now, I'm having a difficulty trying to tell people where to go to listen to our archives at the moment because we, I think we have three locations and there's uh, some coming found in one area, some they can in go another, to tune, and I'll clear that up right now. They can go to TuneIn, type in New Abolitionist Radio, it pulls up all the podcasts. Uh, they can go Tune to, in, of course, it. our home, blacktalkradionetwork.com and you can find it there. Um, so many places, yeah. So just Google it, you'll find the podcast. Awesome. So I'll send them to tune in from now on. That way they can see our full lineup of our archives. Because we have really broken this whole story down now for six years straight, 52 weeks a year. And it's not a repeat of the same information over and over again. I doubt if there's anyone else on the planet who knows as much about contemporary slavery and human trafficking as uh, ourselves and those who tune into this show. I would agree. Literally, you could write books just from our archives. <laughs> I would agree. It's like recording yes, history. Uh, it's literally recording history. Absolutely, Scotty. Absolutely. Uh, today, I got a few videos I want to play. Uh, it helps for me to talk less, and I appreciate that you'll be able to talk more because I know you were sick the last time that we were together. So this time, I'm a little under the weather, and I will avoid talking as much as usual. Uh, I want to start, since we were t talking about uh, Lincoln and Jeff Sessions and the narrative that is being provided, because you, you and I both know it's all about the narrative. It's the, You either control the narrative or you get lost in the narrative. And we need to provide our own narratives based on our own research and understanding. So this is a pretty long document. It's, it's from a book, and I took an entire chapter, chapter 12, uh, it's from the book Freedom National, The Destruction of Slavery in the United States, 1861 to 1865. And chapter 12 is Our Fathers Were Mistaken by James Oakes. So what I want to do is just read a few paragraphs, maybe three minutes worth, and uh, provide the rest of it on New Abolitionist Radio as well as BTR Community. Now, Max, so people can read it in their entirety. So I'm not yes? confused. So you're about to share that information you came across in the book. Yes, oh. uh, since we were here discussing it in the yes. very beginning, yes. might as well just get yes. it out of the way. Yes, please share as much as possible. All right, as I said, it's it's pretty lengthy, so I'm only I'm going to limit to about three minutes. Within three minutes, you can see where everything is going and what was going on. So, by James Oakes, sir, is it not madness to act upon the idea that slavery is dead? Republican Congressman James T. Wilson of Iowa asked in March of 1864. He cited the threats coming from the border states to re-enslave every person you attempt to set free. Even after three years of war, Wilson said, slavery was a condemned 
but unexecuted culprit. We know that it is dead, he declared. Why should we not recognize the fact and provide the execution? But by that means, by what means shall it be executed? Wilson wondered. How shall we perform it? That was the question on every Republican mind when the 38th Congress opened its first session in December of 1863. Slavery was not yet dead. How can we kill it? Republicans were more certain than ever that Union forces would soon win the war, but less certain than ever that slavery would be destroyed in the process. Desperate to abolish slavery and even more desperate to prevent the re-enslavement of those emancipated by war, Republican lawmakers introduced a raft of bills designed to enforce emancipation and make it irreversible. Most of their proposals, however, ran afoul of the federal consensus. For reasons of military necessity, the government could emancipate slaves as individuals, but the power to abolish slavery resided exclusively in the states. As a result of Republicans, as a result, Republicans could not unite around any of the proposals to abolish slavery by means of congressional legislation. There were only two ways to destroy slavery. The states could, could abolish it on their own, or the Constitution could be amended to abolish slavery everywhere. When the 38th Congress convened, it was not clear whether either of these approaches would succeed. At that point, in December of 1863, not a single state had abolished slavery on its own, notwithstanding intense federal pressure to do so. Only West Virginia had adopted gradual abolition, and only because Congress had demanded it as the price of admission to the Union. It seemed unlikely that every loyal slave state would abolish slavery, and even where it was abolished, it could eventually be reestablished. That left only a constitutional amendment, but there was as yet no Republican consensus in favor of that strategy, nor was it clear that Republicans had the power to get an amendment through Congress. Over the next several months, as the weakness of other approaches became more evident, Republicans settled on a 13th Amendment as the best way to destroy slavery completely. In doing so, they finally repudiated the federal consensus. Slavery cannot be abolished by Congress. On December 14, 1863, John, Senator John Hale of New Hampshire introduced a bill to more effectively suppress the rebellion. It was brief and simple. Hale's bill abolished slavery everywhere in the United States. Hereafter, it read, all persons within the United States are equal before the law. All claims of personal service are hereby abolished forever. The only exceptions were parental claims on the labor of minors, state claims on the labor of convicted criminals, and personal claims based on voluntary contract. This was federally mandated abolition. All state laws and constitutions to the contrary notwithstanding, there was no chance that Hale's bill would pass. It was an open rejection of the Republican Party's long-standing acknowledgement that the Constitution recognized slavery as a state institution and that the federal government had no power to abolish slavery in a state where it existed. Hale himself had long proposed amending the Constitution, but the addition of several new slave states soon made it impractical. By 1860, an anti-slavery amendment would have required the unanimous votes of 45 free states to secure ratification over the opposition 
of the 15 slave states then in the Union. That would be impossible even today. No wonder some abolitionists were more likely to burn the Constitution than propose revising it. A constitutional amendment was scarcely thinkable as an anti-slavery strategy until after 11 states seceded. Yet until December in 1863, hardly anybody suggested it. Why, having moved so swiftly to attack slavery as soon as the war began, did Republicans come so belatedly to such an amendment? In part, it was because all of their anti-slavery politics were based on the assumption that the Constitution was already adequate to destroy slavery. Under sustained assault from Southern slaveholders and Northern Democrats that they were trampling on the constitutional rights of the Southern states, Republicans always responded by insisting that their anti-slavery policies were not only constitutional, but also consistent with the federal consensus. They could put slavery on the course of ultimate extinction without directly abolishing it in the states where it was legal. Convinced that slavery was weak, Republicans initially believed that the Southern slave society would crumble once they pulled the federal props from beneath the unstable foundations of the slave power. In the first year of the war, they implemented the basic elements of freedom national, abolishing slavery in the territories and Washington, restricting enforcement of the Fugitive Slave Clause to the states, ratifying a treaty with England, suppressing slavery on the high seas, all while emancipating thousands of slaves coming into the Union lines from the rebel states. By mid-1862, having realized that slavery was stronger and white unionism weaker than they had previously thought, Republicans committed themselves to a much more aggressive policy of universal military emancipation in the seceding states, and with it, the expectation that the friction and abrasion of war would quickly undermine slavery in the loyal border states. The policy was fully implemented when Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation on January 1, 1863. A year later, two things seemed clear to Republicans. The North was going to win the war, and neither military emancipation nor state abolition would be enough to destroy slavery. If something wasn't done, the thing that caused the war would survive the war. The 38th Congress opened for business on early December of 1863, and in less than two weeks, Republican Congressman James Ashley of Ohio, a gentleman we've spoke about here on New Abolitionist Radio, proposed a constitutional amendment prohibiting slavery or involuntary servitude in all the states and territories now owned or which may be hereafter acquired by the United States. A month later, a similar amendment was introduced in the Senate. Both the House and the Senate proposals were referred to their prospective judiciary committees. At that point, a constitutional amendment was but one of several Republican legal strategies for fixing the problem of military emancipation and state abolition. But as the winter months passed, the amendment emerged as the consensus policy. With each passing week, as Republicans considered the various statutory approaches, legislating federal abolition, emancipating the families of black soldiers, criminalizing re-enslavement, reducing the slave states to territories, it became obvious that none of them inspired general support within the party. To be sure, a majority of Republicans seemed ready to abolish slavery by simple, simple congressional legislation, 
but key party leaders, notably Trumbull and Lincoln, remained convinced that legislative abolition was both unconstitutional and just as bad, vulnerable to legal challenge by a later Congress, by the courts, or by the southern states. Gradually, the conclusion dawned, if the Constitution did not allow the federal government to abolish state slavery in states where it was legal, the problem was the Constitution itself, and the problem suggested its own solution. Once Republicans settled on a constitutional amendment as their preferred strategy for destroying slavery, the powerful anti-slavery consensus within the party reemerged. In 1864, winning the war and abolishing its cause by means of a 13th Amendment were the two positions around which all Republicans could unite. In turn, the Democrats lined up in opposition and called for a negotiated peace without regard to slavery. The results especially in the House of Representatives, was a sustained and vituperative de debate. Congressmen called each other names, traitors, Jacobins, warmongers, slavemongers, and Negro worshipers. And the reason for the bitterness was elementary. Everyone understood that slavery was still very much alive, and the outcome of this debate would determine once and for all whether slavery would survive the war or be destroyed by it. The stakes could not have been higher. Um, I'm only going to go that far. There's about three or four more pages that you want to read in there. But pretty much that covers what was going on at the time and why they were using this 13th Amendment. I'll take it back to where I mentioned, uh, where I was reading it, where they said that uh, the amendment that they proposed specifically came into being with the exception for prison slavery. Throughout this, you'll hear them refer to the 13th Amendment and compare it to the, uh, I think it was the 1787 uh, Amendment that was also uh, very comparative to it. Let me see if I can find the name of it down here. The Northwest Ordinance, where they said that the slavery, the uh, right, 13th right. Amendment was basically the exact it. same thing as the Northwest Ordinance, right? Right. Uh, but you, the you... Northwest Ordinance also had an exception for prison labor. And during that time, they were using European prison labor. So they had this thing where in Europe, if you were convicted of a crime that required you to be killed, they would offer you the choice of death or traveling. And traveling meant that you would be sent to America or the new colonies as an indentured servant for X amount of years until your crime uh, was paid. Yeah, so I was taking notes throughout all of that, all of what you read, and it's excellent uh, information. And the Northwest um, Amendment that you talked about earlier, I remember you, you know, bringing that to our attention about a year or so ago. And so, um, but I was taking notes, man. And again, I despise Lincoln. That's why I shot him the bird when I had the opportunity to. At, well, I shouldn't say him, but his memorial statue up there in Washington, D.C. when we went up there for the Millions for Prisoners Human Rights March. Um, so um, I all of my reading and knowing this other stuff was going on, this just adds to it. But let me go to my notes. First thing I wrote down, so that's how we got West Virginia. That was the birth of West Virginia. That there, so, because I was, I always wondered, never looked it up, 
why is there a West Virginia? How did that come to be? You know, why, what made them detach from Virginia? So they admitted them. They, I guess that region of Virginia broke off from the Confederacy to, and that's the only way that they could be admitted was to have, uh, to found their constitution on abolition. Is that, did I hear that correct? Yes, and not just abolition, but gradual abolition. Because, you know, there were several camps and gradual abolition was one of them. Whereas over the course of 20 or 40 or even 50 years, they would emancipate their slaves. Now, also, I made a note about the exception for prisoners. You were talking about, you know, with the you were talking about the exceptions and prisoners was one of them. Uh, uh, Minor children, their parents, there's an exception for that and um it was a third one i i don't i don't quite remember it but again all throughout history we keep seeing these exceptions but like you said you know it goes back to 1787 when we're talking about the u.s government um emancipation proclamation also did not apply that's why frederick Douglass called it a stupendous fraud because uh lincoln that was an executive order by Lincoln, because Jeff Sessions even brought that up in in his little uh, commentary to the Lincoln Club up in Philadelphia, and it only applied to states in rebellion. It only replied to those part of the Confederacy, Kentucky, other other states that practice uh, actively practice slavery. Um, they did not emancipate any of those victims of slavery. And and that's Lincoln's hand all throughout. That's Lincoln. It's like this man did everything possible to preserve slavery and make sure it survives. But of course we know he was good friends with with, with Stevens down there in Georgia and we read some of their correspondence here here lately. And and I'm telling you man, this whole this whole um this whole narrative, this false narrative we've been given about Abraham Lincoln, it needs to be exposed, man, and people need to actively confront that propaganda wherever they come across it. And and so so again, the Emancipation Proclamation did not apply to, to states still part of the Union, but still practicing slavery. Uh, also, uh, Lincoln... I remember reading another piece of information where these field commanders, like even in border states or wherever, um, these field commanders out there fighting the war, they would emancipate victims of slavery, put guns in the hands of the males, give them some field training, and and incorporate them in the troops. You know what Lincoln did? And, And we probably read it on air. Again, we've done six years of this. Lincoln wrote this dude back, this field commander. I don't know if he was colonel, general, whatever. I, he wasn't no general. He was, he was like a colonel or something like that. So anyway, Lincoln writes him back and says that you don't have the authority nor the power to emancipate uh, uh, victims of slavery. Of course, he called them slaves, but to emancipate these human beings from their owners and made them give them back, made them return the, the victims of slavery. This is documented history. But yet we got this so-called pre- 
prestigious club of a bunch of rich white folks up there in Philadelphia perpetrating this fraud and giving out awards to people like Jeff Sessions, a big proponent of private prisons. So that's all I got for you, Max, on that. But thank you for that information. Brother Braggs, did you want to chime in? Uh, yes, sir. Peace, peace, gentlemen. Uh, the date that you guys started at, this is a chronological, the chronological of Lincoln. And it starts from 1860, November, Abraham Lincoln, elected president. December 20th, South Carolina becomes the first southern state to secede from the Union. 61, Convention of Seceded States, South Carolina, Mississippi, Florida, Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, meets in Montgomery. Alabama adopts provisional constitution of Confederate States of America and elects Jefferson Davis provincial president. March, U.S. Congress adopts and sends to the states a constitutional amendment which ultimately failed ratification, forbidding any subsequent amendment to abolish or interfere with the domestic institutions of the states President Lincoln inaugurated. April, Civil War begins with Confederate attack on Fort Garrison at Fort Sumner, South Carolina. President Lincoln issues proclamation called for truce to put down the rebellion. May, following Texas, Arkansas, Tennessee, and Virginia into the Confederacy, North Carolina becomes the first state to secede. Fugitive slaves at Fortress Monroe, Virginia, are received and put to work by Union General Benjamin F. Butler, who declares them contraband of war. Confederate victory at Bull Run, Massachusetts, Madison's. Dashes Union hopes of quelling the rebellion quickly and without great loss of life. First Confiscation Act nullifies owners' claims to fugitive slaves who have been employed in the Confederate War. Invoking martial law, General John C. Fremont declares free the slaves of disloyal owners in Missouri. President Lincoln asked that he modify his order so as not to exceed congressional laws representing respecting emancipation. September, General Fremont, having refused to modify his emancipation order, President Lincoln ordered him, orders him to do so. December. Secretary of War Simon Cameron issues his annual report from which President Lincoln has required the deletion, the delegation of passages, passages advocating emancipation and the employment of former slaves as military laborers and soldiers. Cameron is soon replaced by Edwin M. Stanton. March 1862, Congress adopts the additional article of war forbidding members of Army and Navy to return fugitive slaves to owners. April, General Donald Hunter, Union commander in the South Carolina Sea Islands, requests permission to arm black men for military service. Receiving no response, he begins recruiting his own authority in May, but the War Department refuses to pay or equip the regiment. Hunter is therefore compelled to disband it. At Lincoln's request, Congress pledges financial aid to any state that undertakes graduate emancipation with compensation to owners. Congress abolishes slavery in the District of Columbia with compensation to loyal owners and appropriate money for the voluntary removal colonization of former slaves to Haiti, Libra, Libya, and other countries. May, General Donald Hunter declares free all slaves, South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida. President Lincoln issues a proclamation nullifying General Hunter's emancipation edict and urges the border states, Kentucky, Missouri, Maryland, Delaware, to embrace gradual compensated emancipation. June 7th, Congress adopts legislation enforcing direct tax act, 1861. The seceded state, it provides for forfeiture to the government of land whose owners fail to pay the tax for the subsequent lease or sale. Congress prohibits slavery in the territories. I just got one more thing I want you to hear, and I'm done with that. 
uh, Civil War, the Union Recruitment of Blacks. The department finds it necessary to adopt the regulation with respect to the large and increasing number of persons of color commonly known as contraband, now subsisted at the Navy Yard and on board ships of war. You are therefore authorized when this service can be made useful to enlist them for the Naval Service under the same forms and regulations as apply to other enlistments. They will be allowed, however, no higher ranking than boys. Approximately the lowest rank in the Navy. At a compensation of 10 per month and a one-day rash, the Secretary of Navy, September 20, 1861, at Pecker, the Negro of the Union Navy. I just, and this is it. The rebels drove the force towards the gunboats, taking colored men prisoners and murdering them. This enraged them that they rallied and charged the enemy more heroically and desperately than has been recorded during the war. It was genuine bayonet charge, hand-to-hand fight. One brave man took his former master prisoner and brought him into camp with great gusto. A rebel prisoner made a particular request that his own Negro should not be placed over him as a guard. Eyewitness account of battle uh, on June 7, 1863 in Mississippi Valley, Brown American Re- uh, Rebellion. The two books I just read from gentlemen is uh, The Eyewitness History of uh, Slavery in America from Colonial Times to the Civil War. That's by Dorothy Shiner. And the other book I was reading out is uh, Free at Last, a documentary history of slave freedom and the Civil War. Peace, gentlemen. All right, appreciate that information, Brother Braggs. Again, it just confirms what I've always suspected when I started reading about this six years ago in, in Lincoln. That, that Nothing but a lying lawyer, man. And, and, and it's recorded all throughout history, uh, him returning victims of slavery, him just trying to let it survive. So how did, I mean, this man... Like Greg said at the Lincoln Memorial, uh, who's also on video when I shot uh, uh, the Lincoln statue, the bird. But he was like, Lincoln was like politicians that we have today. One thing come out their mouth, but they doing other things. Does that remind y'all of anybody? Should remind you of several, you know, presidents and people who have ran for president. And, And Lincoln was a snake. And these lives need to be destroyed. But the key thing that was pointed out um, from when I was talking about um, the colonel, um, I don't recall the area that they were in, um, but where he was recruiting these victims of slavery. And then you, we have to also remember Frederick Douglass was arguing for the free black population to be able to join the Union. And Lincoln, just like George Washington during the Revolutionary War, had a racist ban. Would not allow black people, victims of slavery, to join the, uh, excuse me, the uh, Continental Army. This is recorded history. And they only started accepting them when the British was, was emancipating every black person who joined their ranks. I just don't understand why I, I don't want to go there. But Lincoln did the same thing. Resisted enlisting black troops at every turn. And at the end, who saved the Union? These victims of slavery and free black people. They couldn't have won it without us. And them field commanders knew that. They knew that. Lincoln wasn't no military man. They knew the only way they could defeat the Confederacy is to arm the black man. Max. Uh, Brother Braggs, did you want to chime back in? Uh, yeah, I just wanted to say one thing while you're still on that point. Remember this, because most people miss this. Lincoln started the bar in Illinois. And uh, I, I think I want to get this date right. I might be off, but I believe it was in uh, 18... 18- 
91, that Black Law Dictionary came out. Now, it might sound crazy, but I believe Black's Law Dictionary was made for all these Negro slave code, Black slave code, Christian slave codes. And then all the law that pertains to it. Now, Lincoln didn't write this. Another gentleman wrote this. But Lincoln started the bar in Illinois. And remember, Lincoln went against the, the states when he, he was going to mint his own money. That's what got him killed. So he was a dirty dog, and he paid for it. That's all I had. Peace, man. Hey, can you guys hear me now? Yes, sir. Oh, okay. Yeah, I lost connection. Thank you, Brother Braggs, for giving us that information. I was looking through my files to find that timeline of events that you were referring to. I, I have one as well. This particular article or this particular book that I was reading from, one of the things that impressed uh, me the most is the way they were talking about slavery as a living thing, that it was, like Frederick Douglass said, uh, doing whatever it could for its own continuance uh, to stay alive, slavery by another name, uh, like a, a great evil that would exist regardless of who lived at the time or who said and did what. And that was impressive for me. The other thing that was very important and what I've been looking for for a long time is the conversations about the institution of the 13th Amendment with the exceptions included. Uh, as I said, we found that it was introduced by an Ohio senator who was also an abolitionist himself working on the Underground Railroad. And that blew our mind. Like, how can you have that exception clause? And there could be no discourse about it. Like, nobody ever says, hey, what about that exception clause? And this helps to uh, better understand or clearly understand what was going on in the minds of the people at that time with this conversation. And then it also traced back, as they said, uh, to the... Uh, to the 1787 uh, document, and we have traced it even further back to the Constitution of Vermont in 1777, which is actually the first example of an exception clause in a state constitution. So although they said it was the Northwest Ordinance, I think that uh, based on our research here, or my research here, that it was the Vermont Constitution that began it all. which was prior to the Northwest Ordinance by 10 years. So you could say that the Northwest Ordinance took their uh, verbiage from the Vermont Constitution, which is still active to this day. I mean, from right. All the states have them. 2018. Uh, you know, that was the whole purpose, Max, of us taking 50 weeks out of the year. Probably could have did a few more weeks if we covered the territories, but we know that they govern by the federal government, Puerto Rico, you know, U.S. Virgin Islands, uh, Guam, other other places. But that's why we did it, to show people that that none of these states, with the exception of North Carolina, but it has its own exception clause, but, but all of these states have the except for punishment for crime clause in it. And North Carolina says slavery shall be abolished. And there's a period, end of freaking sentence. But then it makes the exception for involuntary servitude as punishment for crime. Come on now. They, they, they right. play games. But that's it's the closest it. one. That's the closest one that I recall in our research that even came close to actually abolishing slavery. Well, there was one state that did abolish Slavery. Which one was, was that? No exception, and that was Rhode Island. Rhode Island, and which, okay. Which is why I've been pushing my Rhode Island context 
contacts out there to really focus on that and use it as a tool. Because if they can show that Rhode Island, the state of Rhode Island, is practicing slavery and human trafficking in the form of their justice system, then they can take that to court using the Constitution itself their as state uh, Constitution. the tool for making the difference. And they could set precedents by right. doing so. So I'm hoping that the people in Rhode Island start considering maybe using uh, that uh, individuality that they maintain of being the only state to abolish slavery as a tool in ending slavery all across the country. If not eventually, worldwide. Shout shout out to Colorado and uh, other states uh, that attempted to remove the exception clause uh, since the six years that we've been broadcast. And that's the first time that I've I've read throughout history that there was an effort to even remove exception clauses at the state constitution level. In Indiana, uh, Colorado, and Maryland were states that attempted to take the exception clause out. Neither one of them were successful, yet Colorado got the closest with Amendment T. I believe that they were only a million votes short of actually uh, passing Amendment T. And the reason that they didn't get it passed is because a narrative was provided by the prison industries that made people think that what they really wanted to do was free all of those prisoners in Colorado. And as we know, Colorado has the highest uh, number of maximum security prisons in the whole country. So that was scaring the hell out of people. And I wonder if we can voted against it. I wonder if we can connect those private uh, prison companies or any that sponsored campaign ads, social media ads to defeat amendments like Amendment T in Colorado. We can connect them to some Russians or some, because again, these are publicly traded companies and they got investors, shareholders, board members. I wonder if we can connect them to some Russians. Maybe people will then be willing to remove the exception clause if we say the Russians keeping it in place. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to go off on that tangent. Oh, you're, you're right, Scotty, and, and you are right, because that is another story that kind of leads into this one. Uh, how do we go from 1861 through 65 to 2018? What is the examples and what's going on now? And that's what I found in revisiting the Kids for Cash uh, scandal that happened in Pennsylvania. We all remember two judges were convicted, sentenced to 28 years for selling children, or so they say, selling children to a private prison for kickbacks of as much as $2 million. They'd done this to thousands of children. Uh, All of these children's records were expunged and they were released based on a Supreme Court ruling after the scandal came out. But as of recently, one of the judges who was convicted, uh, Chivarello, has went back to court and had some of his uh, charges uh, reversed. So some of his charges are no longer even there. So I had to go back and uh, review the original. How, how can, you, re- how can you reverse charges? You can't reverse charges. You mean convictions? Yes. Uh, re- uh, I, I'll find the, the uh, Overturned article his and convictions. we can talk about it there because actually I want to play a video on both of them and I, I do have videos for both of them available. Okay. So let me uh, look it up here. I don't know if I can actually play videos that people can hear. No, it's best that I play them. I'm on our thread in BTR community. Yeah, look for the uh, Kids for Cash. There's two videos, one from when it originally happened, and then one that talks about how they've had their charges uh, either 
dismissed or removed certain charges. Um, and they're both videos. So we could listen to the first, talk about that, which is the present, and then listen to the one from, uh, here I found it too. It says, Civarello found guilty of most serious charges. That's the old one. And judge rules in Civarello's favor in Kids for Cash appeal. That's the current citizensvoices.com. Okay, so I, I found the one judge rules in Civarello's favor in Kids for Cash appeal out of Harrisburg Citizens Voice. Is that the one with the video you want me to play? No, sir. That's just the uh, first article to tell you about what's going on right now. But feel free to go ahead and uh, read as much of that article as you want. Okay, so I'm trying to find the video, now. though. Okay, Pennsylvania. Right okay, I found it. It's a YouTube video. All right. Yes. Okay. So let's start with the article, and then we'll play the video for the uh, original uh, circumstances after that. Okay, let me pull that article back up, give it an opportunity to load from citizensvoice.com. Loading up pretty fast. Good job, guys. Uh, James Halpin published this January the 9th, 2018. Harrisburg, and, and again, this hasn't been on any national media that I've seen, you know. Nobody's been harping on that. It's been 24-7 coverage of Donald Trump just like during the, uh, um, you know, campaign for the election from these networks. Uh, a federal judge on Monday reversed some of disgrace former Judge Mark A. Civarella Jr.'s convictions, finding that his trial attorney's failure to pursue a statute of limitations defense may have altered the outcome of his trial. Wow, do they do that for anybody that's wrongfully convicted for rape or robbery or for having drugs? I mean, this judge seemed to have went the extra mile for um, you know, probably who he still sees as his brother in the robe. Uh, Sybil, Sybarello, 67, was convicted of 12 of 39 charges for accepting kickback, kickbacks in exchange for funneling juvenile defendants to detention centers built by wealthy developer Robert K. Maris, um I'm not sure how to pronounce Miracle. it. Miracle. Miracle construction firm and operated by companies controlled by former local attorney, another lawyer, Robert Powell. He was seeking reversal on some of those counts, arguing his trial attorneys were ineffective for failing to raise statute of limitation claims before the jury. Now, you know why I would have wow. dismissed that? I wouldn't have reversed. I'm going to tell you why that. We're talking about a judge. So, you mean to tell me, judge... That you didn't have no knowledge, you didn't have no input into your own defense. Now, if this was just a regular non-attorney, non-judge that's been your profession all these years who don't know the law, then I might would accept a reversal. But no, this is a judge who who took the bar exam, you know what I'm saying, uh, all of that. So this is this is a a BS on the part of this this judge. Uh, what's this judge name? It, it hasn't said the judge's name. Christopher C. Connor. In his Mr. ruling judge Monday. Connor. Yeah, in his ruling Monday, Chief U.S. District Judge Christopher C. Connor. So U.S. District Judge, he's appointed. He was appointed by somebody. Uh, by some administration 
rejected that argument. In his ruling Monday, Chief U.S. District Judge Christopher C. Connor rejected that argument related to three counts of honest services mail fraud, but agreed the attorney's errors at trial could have changed the outcome related to counts of racketeering, racketeering conspiracy, and conspiracy to commit money laundering. So what, you mean to tell me that there's a um, statute of limitation on RICO charges? That's something for, for us to research because I, I, I'm not aware of that. Apparently, five years is too long, and that's what they're talking about, five years. Really? Really? Council operated exclusively and unjustifiably on an erroneous assumption concerning a crucial point of law, Connor wrote. That error deprived Civarello of a viable defense. Well, it, it, this something don't sound right, and I'm going to leave it there before we go to the video. Y'all can read the rest. But um, it don't it don't seem that if the statute of limitations have passed, they don't bring charges. Think Bill Cosby, also in Pennsylvania, wasn't it, where, where he was charged? Didn't they dismiss some charges? Or, or not dismiss some charges, but dismiss the ideal of bringing charges, citing statute of limitations. That doesn't sound right to me, Max. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm discombobulated right now. But when something is past the statute of limitations, prosecutors don't charge you with it. So yeah, there's a couple of things that are discombobulated in this uh, story, Scotty. But sure. again, this is no ordinary defendant. This is a judge. This was an acting judge at the time of his arrest. Right. And, you know, the whole storyline and the truth was that these two judges, because it was two of them, were literally selling children to a private prison and they were getting kickbacks for doing it. Even the Supreme Court released the children because that was what they were doing. But they charged these judges with racketeering. Human trafficking did not come into the narrative. And uh, you'll hear about I was just that thinking that, Max. Play. I was just thinking that right when you said it. What about uh -huh. human trafficking charges? Right. So they got them on racketeering, which is it's okay, I guess, but they completely ignored the aspect which uh, showed that this system was a system of human trafficking that they were dealing with. Uh, just the last part of the article is worth reading so people are aware. Civarella is six years into a 28-year prison sentence that he's serving at a federal correction institution, Ashland, in Kentucky. Another judge snared in the scandal, Michael T. Conahan, 65, pleaded guilty to racketeering conspiracy charges and is now serving 17 and a half years in prison at Federal Correction Institution in Miami. The Kids for Cash scandal, which generated national attention, led to hearings and reforms, including creation of a juvenile justice task force that implemented programs in schools and developed youth aid panels to help first-time offenders. Uh, with that being said, none of that helped Khalif Browder, who was also a victim of the same circumstances. So there we have the current events on these uh, two judges and uh, what they're dealing with right now. So let's go back and pass the past to 2000. And uh, I believe this video came from 2010 or 2011. So whenever you're ready, let's hear that video. 
I've got nothing to say. You heard what I had to say. I've got nothing to say. Mark, how, do you, how do you feel? I mean, the verdict is in. Former Luzerne County Judge Mark Chivarella is found guilty of the most serious charges against him. Good evening and thank you for joining us. I'm Candace Kelly. And I'm Drew Spire. The jury returned with their verdict about 1.30 this afternoon. They found former Luzerne County Judge Mark Chivarella guilty on 12 of the 39 counts against him. We have live team coverage with our I-team reporters Andy Mahalshik and Joe Holden at the federal courthouse in Scranton. But we begin with Andy. Andy? Candace, quite the day here, quite the end of a trial that gained nationwide attention. The bottom line, former Luzerne County Judge Mark Chivarella guilty of 12 of 39 counts, the most serious, of course, being racketeering, money laundering, conspiracy, and, of course, tax evasion. He admitted on the stand in his own words he filed false tax returns, so that was pretty much a slam dunk. By last count, he faces more than 100 years in prison. Now, we're going to show you some video clips, first of all, of Chivarella coming out of court moments after he was found guilty. And in that same clip, we tried to talk to jury foreman. Of course, they had really nothing to say, but here's how that transpired. We'll start with Mark Chivarella. Absolutely never took a dime to send a kid anywhere. If that was the case, that would have been in this trial. You don't think the government would have put, that, put me on trial for that if that was the case? Never happened. Never, ever happened. This case was about extortions and kickbacks. That's what this case was about, not about kids for cash. Because if it was, they'd have had that on trial. I had to stop the BS right there and just think to yourself, what was the kickbacks for? So the kickback was for him sentencing children to kitty daycare. This is the actual name, if I'm not mistaken, Max. Pennsylvania child care. Pennsylvania child care. This is a kitty prison. But the, the names that they choose to deceive you. Anyway, continue. Mark, you were convicted of racketeering and serious, serious charges. What do you have to say about that? Excuse me, I just need to get my car going. How do you feel about fighting being over? I'm glad it's over. Was it tough? Yes, it was. Did you want to say anything to the families of the kids involved here on behalf of the jury? I think we did our job on their behalf. Okay, thank you, sir. Thank you. Now, he was found not guilty of extortion and bribery, which was the information from attorney Bob Powell, the co-owner of PA Child Care Center. Those charges found not guilty, so they are claiming victory of sorts. My IT partner, Joe Holden, quite the afternoon, Joe, they're claiming victory, but that's not holding water with the prosecutors, is it? No, it's not, and in fact, they took the wind right out of those sails at a news conference held just moments after Chivarella emerged out of the courthouse, and there were a lot of sparks as he came out, and he had a face the apparent mother of one of the children he locked up. What began as a news conference with Mark Chivarella's attorney calling Friday's verdict a victory quickly unraveled on the courthouse steps. This is not a cash for kids case and we hope somebody starts getting the message. He's not here anymore. My kid's not here. He's dead. Because of him. He ruined my life. I'd like him to go to hell and rot there forever. Ma'am, come on. No, you know what he told everybody in court? They need to be held accountable for their actions. You need to be. Do you remember me? Do you remember me? Do you remember my son? An all-star wrestler? He's gone. He shot himself in the heart. You scumbag. 
U.S. Marshals moved the woman away from a horde of cameras and reporters as she claimed her son killed himself after an appearance before Chivarella when he was Luzerne County's juvenile court judge. Attorney Al Flora reiterated what he thought the jury said in its verdict. It supports his claim from day one that he never bribed anyone, never took a kickback, and he never extorted Robert Powell. Inside, U.S. Attorney Peter Smith dismissed claims Chivarella leaves here with a verdict. I have to point out that I find it interesting that a man just convicted of racketeering is claiming any sort of a victory out there today. I wonder what he would consider a defeat. Smith points to the possibility of a lengthy prison term, and he directly addressed the kids for cash scandal, which continues to hang over Luzerne County. As the ju uh, juvenile court judge are known, uh, and we leave that uh, and to the appropriate state authorities to address. To some extent, it's already being addressed. Back live, and depending on who you ask, obviously you can see there are two different worlds here as far as the outcome and, and who really is claiming victory tonight. Back here tonight at 6 o'clock, the mafia connection and how this investigation got off the ground four years ago. I mean, there is no victory, you know. Uh, yeah, he got convicted, but that's not a victory, in, in my opinion, um, that slavery still exists. So, I mean, but just the audacity of these soulless creatures, man, that's the only way, that's the first thing that comes to my mind. You had to be a soulless creature to do what you did to these children. And I believe, Max, I, I, I don't have anything but circumstantial evidence uh, I think that's what they call it in the court of law, circumstantial evidence. I don't, I haven't done the research and done the polls or whatnot, but I believe the only reason these two judges got busted is because their primary victims were children classified as white. That well, that's this is, one of the issues that I found in reviewing it again and again and again. I could not find a black face anywhere in this. Now, we know that this happens to black children all over the country. That's why I was going to say. But nobody seemed to care until it was a bunch of white kids that it was happening to. Exactly. Well, Max, we are over for our break. We want to take our station identification break if you want to take us there. Yes, uh, we'll take our break. And when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about this and then move on to the next story. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio here on the Black Talk Radio Network, where we're talking about modern-day slavery and human trafficking. We'll be right back after these messages. Podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. We were just talking about the Kids for Cash scandal and uh, some of the hidden meanings and circumstances that uh, 
are behind all of this. We were just listening to the video from 2011 where uh, one of the judges were talking about how it was a victory. And Scotty, you asked, how could this possibly be viewed as a victory? Well, they weren't prosecuting him for human trafficking, and that in itself is a victory. Uh, it could have led to the downfall of the entire Justice Department. That's true, Max. That, That's very true. If he had been charged, and they are federal statutes against um, human trafficking and slavery uh, because the immigrants who are not U.S. citizens and therefore the 13th Amendment don't apply to them unless they commit criminal offenses but but when they're un here undocumented as they say that's a civil violation and that's why those in private prisons have this class action lawsuit I think it's class action lawsuit against the GEO group because it violates federal right. human trafficking laws am I recalling that story correctly yes you are and also uh, Merkel and his organization were also associated with the GEO group which again that's why it would be a victory this could have led to something bigger than it was already uh, being portrayed as, which is why they never incorporated and the prosecutors never used any language that implied that human trafficking was involved in this. During that same time period, uh, you may remember, the vice president, sitting vice president of the United States, Dick Cheney, and the sitting attorney general, Alberto Gonzalez, were both indicted on crimes of organized criminal activity. And it was related to uh, abuse of inmates in private prisons. They were brought to court in Texas because it was found out that the sitting vice president had $80 million of his own money invested in these private prisons. So he was helping to enforce or create laws along with Alberto Gonzalez, who also had money invested uh, in uh expanding the prison for-profit private prison industry because they were literally making money off of it while they were in office. This thing was huge. So to say that he had a victory, I guess he would be right because him, the U.S. government from the president down, the Department of Justice, all could have been implicated in what was going on in Pennsylvania because it was not limited to Pennsylvania. Scotty? Yeah, I agree, Max. It's, it's happening all over the country, man. And so I'm wondering why. Why would these prosecutors not well, To protect the system. Uh, to protect the system. Protect the system. That's right. Yep. It's terrible, man, to protect the damn system. And, you know, it's not the only way where they prey on us uh, by incarcerating children for kickbacks. The jails, uh, the cash bail system is another way where they do it. It's literally a trap where they make it so you can't afford to pay these bails and that forces you to spend time in jail. Uh, we've got several stories this week where a guy, for instance, stole a bottle of perfume worth $5 and his bail was set at $350,000. Another woman who was in a uh, dispute with her mother-in-law, cops showed up and put her in jail and her bail was as much as I think was $250,000. I mean, that is unconstitutional according to the Eighth Amendment. The Eighth Amendment guarantees you protection from things like that, and yet we're seeing it happening 
uh, every day, all day long, with this uh, modern-day debtors' prisons, which is a part of the system of modern slavery. There's an article that came out of Truth Out, where uh, the writer, Mark Carlin, did an interview with an author, Peter Eldmans, who wrote the book Not a Crime to be Poor, about the criminalization of poverty in America. And some of the details that come out of it is amazing. And it's pretty obvious what's going on here. <clears throat> so if you want, I'll just move on to that story and show how these things are connected. Uh, Scotty? Yeah, please right. do. Well, this is from Truth Out, and it's an interview. So uh, it'll sound like that. The criminalization of poverty by mass incarceration system is slowly changing, but you can hear the creaking. In the, this exclusive interview with Truth Out, author Peter Elderman discusses some of the more egregious scams inflicted on the poor and prospects for reform. So Mark Carlin asks, why is Ferguson, Missouri, a symbol of the criminalization of poverty? And Peter Elderman says, the killing of Michael Brown coincidentally brought to daylight the city's seemingly bizarre method of obtaining revenue, arresting its populace over and over for minuscule offenses, especially its African-American community, and then hitting them with exorbitant fines and fees and jailing them when they were unable to pay. The practice included extensive driver's license suspensions, had been occurring nationally, but few were aware of that. It had begun with the anti-tax movement in the Reagan years, which caused court systems and entire state finance structures to turn to charging the system's customers. But people hit with fines and fees in their own municipalities thought it was a local phenomenon. Some lawyers and public officials, especially judges and journalists, gradually caught on and the problem accelerated with the Great Recession. Ferguson broke it open. It is a government-operated loan shark operation. Slap with court debts that easily began at $1,000, counting fines and fees, both people are hooked. Not able to keep up with the payment plans, more is added with interest fees for phony probation, public defenders, and additional fees, and fees for room and board. The court debt routinely increases to $5,000 and more. Now, you remember that $5,000 is what they demanded from Sandra Bland the day she died. So, in many instances, time in jail comes from not making a time on a payment plan. In many instances, unconstitutionally, money bail plays a big role. Arrested on minor matters, people are held in jail on bail for 500, 1,000, or much more. And their only path out is to plead guilty. That done, the defendant is then in the clutches of a payment plan and the squeeze goes on and on. Nationally, the estimated toll is 10 million people owing $50 billion in court debt. Let me repeat that sentence. Nationally, the estimate, estimated toll is 10 million people owing $50 billion in court debt. Fortunately, people are now fighting back. The awakening from Ferguson and the leadership from President Obama's Department of Justice brought the fight into overdrive. Public interest lawyers raised additional funds and attracted partners from the private bar. State chief justices and other public officials jumped in deeper, and journalists' interested, uh, interest multiplied. Even as Trump's Department of Justice has jumped ship, there is a momentum 
throughout the country, and it is headed in the right direction. I'm just going to read a little bit more of this, Scotty. How do you describe the school-to-jail pipeline in your book and the intersection of poverty and race in terms of students, he's asked. And he answers, speaking generally, school discipline has always been meted out disproportionately for children of color and children with disabilities, with such children too often ending up in the not very just system, matters get worse in the 90s, especially after Columbine in 1997. Federal funds adding up to $750 million paid for 6,500 school resource offices in 3,000 schools around the country, disproportionately in schools with large numbers of low-income children of color. The number of children, children with disabilities as well as those of color, who are now sent to court for scuffles that used to be handled in principal offices has skyrocketed. During the 2011 and 12 school year, 92,000 students nationally were the subject of school-related arrests, and 260,000 were referred to law enforcement, according to the U.S. Department of Education Office of Civil Rights. These practices changed the pipeline to prison into expressways, Sending children to juvenile court is bad enough, but in Texas and Wyoming, children are sent to adult courts, regardless of the court. The outcome often includes levying fines and fees, just as is done in criminal courts generally, and even more often results in collateral consequences that make a lifelong barrier to employment, public housing, voting, and more. These things do not have to be. And you can read the rest on both our New Abolitionist radio page on Facebook as well as our BTR community. It's a very interesting interview. And just what we've read so far shows you that what we were talking about with the kids for cash is still going on. And it includes the bail system as well as the inclusion of these 700,000 uh school resource officers or however many thousand resource officers that were brought in 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 the 90s. Scotty? Yes. Can you hear me, Max? Yes, sir. Yeah. Well, you mentioned poverty. Let me pull this up real quick. Um, That was like a trigger for me. Uh, Obviously, I do recall stories over the years where there's been a trend to, as they say, this term that was coined criminalizing the poor um you know homeless people uh criminalizing them putting them in jails and what have you but in charlotte north carolina you know this also applies to the so-called diversion programs you know usually when a person this is their first criminal offense or or whatever they won't put them through the regular criminal court they will put them in a diversion program but in charlotte north carolina i should say mecklenburg county where charlotte is located um you had to pay uh fees that was upwards i think one of the fees mentioned in the article was like $700. And if you didn't have the money to pay, then they put you through the regular criminal justice system. You know, you don't get diverted and it's based on ability to pay. And they just only recently made some reforms there. Um, 
with that system because it was a big thing. It was this guy they had charged, this black guy they had charged, and it was his first offense. I don't recall what he was charged with, nonviolent, whatever offense. And he was going to school and working, and, and he didn't have the money to pay for it, as many students don't have money. You know, and even though they're working and trying to go to school and there was like a GoFundMe set up for him and they raised all the money. So it kind of got a little national attention, not much uh, because of that. And then that put the whole issue under the spotlight in Mecklenburg County to where now they have uh, reformed that. And it's it's based on your ability. Um, no, I shouldn't use that term, but it's it. it if you don't have the money, if you're in poverty, you can still go through the diversionary program. Yeah, the system is set up so people with resources don't get caught in the net. It's really just that simple. Right. If you have the money, it's justice you won't for get sale. It's justice for sale. It's justice for sale. There is a little bit more of this article that I think I should read that uh, says a lot. It says most of the people who the judge says has to post bail are low-income people of color, and they are being held for 500 or 1,000 or more on junky stuff, low-level misdemeanors, very minor stuff. These are people who, along with their families, can't come up with the money. There are 700,000 people in jail, not prison, every day, 11 million annually, and 450,000 of the 700,000 have not been found guilty. They are being held for trial. So what happens? They plead guilty when they're not guilty because they want to get out. Now, having pled guilty, they may do time and owe a bunch of money in a payment plan. What they don't know is that they will owe a lot more. A fee to be on probation, for example. And that's done in 44 states. It usually isn't real probation services. It's just about getting money. In 13 states, it's for profit. But that means 31 other states do it as a public agency. Man. Like everything we're talking about today is unconstitutional. It's a violation, a wholesale violation of the Eighth Amendment. Everything we're talking about are human rights violations. And everything that we're talking about today even though it is deemed legal, is a crime against humanity. Yes, they should the be on trial with the ICC. Slavery. Yes, they should be on trial with Duarte, but unfortunately, the United States did not uh, become a signatory of the International Criminal Court, but they may get, get my boy, Mad Dog Duarte out there in the Philippines who've been gunning down suspected drug addicts and, and telling the police to just murder them in the streets and thousands of people. Yeah, he's about to um, possibly be charged by the International uh, Criminal Court. But, you know, again, it's also the travesty of pleading guilty to something that you did not do simply because you were coerced because you were in jail. And you couldn't get out, couldn't afford to get out. Who knows? Maybe you don't even have family or friends. And but for whatever reasons, you are forced to stay in there. And you that coerces you, coerces you to plead guilty to something you didn't do simply because you want to get out of jail. And they may work out a deal to time, sir. But some people spend a year or two in jail, and they may sentence them to time, sir. But 
What? But they also lose an important right, constitutional right, and that's the right to vote. And that's why I support uh, all initiatives to allow prisoners to vote. I don't this whole felony disenfranchisement. No, even prisoners should be allowed to vote. I don't accept. Right. I don't accept yeah, that they right. lose rights, human rights or whatever, you know, in order for them to serve their time. We got to strip them of these rights or, or, or whatever. No, it's designed to keep the system in place because you now remove people with firsthand experience about slavery and human trafficking and they're likely not to to remember those politicians that's in power and vote against them so what how do you saw that you strip them of their rights to vote you know scotty one thing i find myself faced with as i do every week is i cannot get everything i want to get into this two hours as you mentioned so i will do a quick call out of the titles of what you can find in our program page so you can look through the other stories but there are a couple of things I want to try to squeeze in if possible. One thing is that when we're talking about this being unconstitutional, it's not something we're talking about. These are what judges have been saying over and over and over again. One example comes out of the LA Times in the case of a San Francisco senior citizen who was accused of stealing $5 and a bottle of cologne from his neighbor. And it reveals the op- obvious injustice of California's bail system And it says, Kenneth Humphrey has languished in San Francisco County Jail for more than 250 days on $350,000 in bail. His charges include robbery and residential burglary for allegedly stepping into his neighbor's room in their senior housing complex. But in late January, a panel of state appeal court judges ordered a new bail hearing for the retired shipyard laborer. The panel also stated that the laws governing bail are the antithesis of what the Constitution requires before a person may be deprived of liberty. A defendant may not be imprisoned solely due to poverty, the court said, a revolutionary decision if it's upheld. San Francisco is ground zero for the state's battle over bail. Since October, the city public defenders have challenged bail amounts in virtually every criminal case demanding that judges hold hearings to consider alternatives to incarceration and inquiring into their clients' financial circumstances. So you see here is an example. You've got this elderly man in his 80s who's in jail for 250 days, nearly, you know, three quarters of a year because he stole a bottle of perfume from his neighbor. Now, how is that? Allegedly, allegedly, allegedly. Allegedly, $350,000. Who the hell put that bail up? And what was on their mind to think that that was okay? And we hear these cases like this happening all across America. It's a system of slavery, and it's embedded in every part of our justice system, or as they said earlier, not very justice system. So it's embedded in every part of it, and it's all driven by capital. Even our uh Justice Department Justice follows market values. So that's just one example there. Now, you said earlier, people will will say that they committed a particular crime in order to avoid this jail time. But sometimes the crime 
It's a crime that was created to criminalize a community. And that's happening right here in my community right now. Uh, in Columbia, South Carolina, South Carolina lawmakers are hoping to pass a bill to ban saggy pants throughout the state. House Bill 4957 would make it illegal for a person to expose their skin or underwear by wearing the pants three inches below the crest of his ilium, whatever the hell a ilium is, the top of the hips. Violation fines equal just enough to buy that much needed belt. $25 for a first offense, $50 or three hours of community service for a second offense, and $75 for six hours of community service for a third or subsequent offense. Violations wouldn't be considered criminal or delinquent or put state, college, or university financial assistance at risk. Well, I'm not even going to read the rest of that. You can read it on New Abolitionist Radio. They're saying that it wouldn't put your college or university financial assistance at risk, and it's just these low fines, but it just gives police more of an opportunity to interact with minority young people and children over something like fashion. And you may not put their college education at risk, but you're certainly putting their lives at risk because anything can happen. We have seen these children these uh, be tossed around by police inside the schools. We've seen them being tossed around uh, at pool parties, little girls. We've seen these children be shot and murdered. One example is a story that we won't be able to cover tonight where a policeman uh, chased down this car full of teenage kids and then shot the car up about with 10 shots, stopped, reloaded, and emptied his gun again, all while these children were in the car screaming, please, I've been shot, stop shooting me. And yet this policeman continued until he emptied his gun twice. So you put these opportunities for these interactions to end up that way in these children's path. So yes, they may not lose their college education, but they may lose their lives. Well, Scotty, uh, in regard to that particular story, I have another mentee. Uh, his name is uh You want Henry. to take our break early? A couple yeah, minutes let, early? Uh, let me take the break, and when we come back, this way you can get the video ready. I'm putting it on New Abolitionist Radio's Facebook page now. It's also on our planning page. Uh, one of my mentees uh, did what he could to solve or to stop this problem right here, and it's available on video. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio here on the Black Talk Radio Network. As I said, we're talking about modern-day slavery and human trafficking, trafficking as it is allowed through the 13th Amendment. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Media Project would like to invite you to become a member of the BTR Community subscription-based social media platform. BTR Community is a platform that was set up for the listening audience of Black Talk Radio Network, the number one independent black radio network online. 
For just $24 per year, your subscription gives you access to an interactive space to share information with like-minded people with your privacy guaranteed. Your subscription will go a long way to help us maintain and improve our current media platforms. It will also help provide a budget so that we can begin the task of establishing localized media centers and radio stations across the United States. The best way to show your support and appreciation for what we do here at Black Talk Radio is to subscribe. Help us to help you be informed. Join btrcommunity.com today. Welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. We are going to finish up uh, with this story by playing a video from one of my mentees. Uh, and his, his name is Spirit, the tattoo poet, uh, my brother Henry. I've been working with him about 12 years now. And I'd like to show you what he's going to do in order to try to oppose House Bill 4957, which would only further criminalize young people of color based on their freaking fashion sense instead of anything criminal that they're actually doing. So, Scotty, if you could just uh, play that for me, it would, uh, and we'll show you what other people can do as well. Yeah, I'm having trouble finding it. I'm on BTR Community. Um, uh, let me see if I can put What's the name again. of it? It'll be the last yeah. thing. It's, it doesn't actually have a name. It's a Facebook video. So, I just put it... Oh, wait. That's not the right one. My bad. Hold on. I'm getting it for you. It's a picture of you'll see a, a brother's hand. Okay, got it. Letter, got it. Henry Henderson. Got it. Right. Good. Okay. Ants illegal in Columbia, South Carolina. I'm writing a letter to my congressman about it, and it reads as follows. As one of your constituents, this bill is a direct affront not only to our free country, but will directly and disproportionately affect African-American citizens. It uses resources unnecessarily to discriminate against citizens who are causing no harm or disorder, and widens the divide between our police officers and those they're sworn to protect. Bill 4957 is not unlike the unconstitutional stop-and-frisk laws in which minorities were directly targeted, harassed, and humiliated. Not only does it target a certain group of people that also infringes upon the First Amendment that protects all citizens' rights to personal expression. I feel as though South Carolina is above implementing such discriminatory policies like these. Please vote no on this bill to preserve the rights of its citizens. So yeah, um, I'm just kind of doing this because um, uh, obviously, you know, complaining about it to your friends on Facebook and things like that are uh, ineffective and this is my civic and, um, you know, it's my civic duty as a citizen. Alright, I hope you guys take heed and start to write your congressman about the things that are important to you as well. Peace. There you have it. Uh, Henry Henderson, Columbia, South Carolina. He's doing what he can. And you can do the same exact thing to stop this bill. Write a letter to your congressman and let them know how you feel. We do not need to criminalize our youth any further. All right. Scotty, this is our speed read section where we're just going through titles. Uh, if you would like to read the stories that we weren't able to cover, go to BTR Community, the abolitionist planning pages, and you can see them all right there. Uh, it starts with, as I said, the exclusive dramatic dash cam video that reveals Officer Brown fired 21 shots into these teenagers in this car unnecessarily. Also, J-Pay, who is uh, providing these inmates with so-called free tablets 
is set up to make $9 million in profit. Nothing is free. Then, out of Philly, Larry Krasner is suing Big Pharma, and he is dropping all marijuana possession charges. Uh, this is the district attorney out of Philadelphia, and he's dropping all marijuana possession charges. And I don't know why every damn state in the union Good can't job. do that. Good job. Now, go ahead and release them records uh, from from that judge that helped set up Momia. Right. Uh, the other one is uh, a jury in the Corinne Gaines civil trial awards her family $37 million in damages. That $37 million is coming from you and me. It's not coming from the policeman who murdered her and shot her her son, five-year-old son. And you should read or you should listen to Cody Gaines as he spoke from the hospital with a gunshot wound, this five-year-old child who we, we are told what exactly happened that day. Uh, then further, uh, we have uh, a Jackson County Circuit judge who fired a 34-year court veteran for a good deed. Basically, he gave some advice uh, on DNA evidence to uh, someone by the name of, uh, I believe her name was Sharon Snyder, and she was fired about nine months prior to her retirement after 34 years as a court employee and was let go by Jackson County Circuit Judge in Missouri for offering legal advice to 49-year-old Robert Nelson, convicted in 1984, to 50 years incarceration for a Kansas City rape the year prior. It was a crime he did not commit, and he ended up getting free. And because she had done that, they fired her nine months before her retirement. Uh, further, I think we got a couple more here as we talk about the conventions of states, which is getting closer and closer. They are only four states away from having what is called the uh, an Article Five Convention of States, where uh, basically a uh, racist group of individuals within Republican conservative parties are going to go in special interests are going to go in and attempt to change our constitution that is a dangerous dangerous situation and you should be very aware of it and the 13th uh, amendment ain't on the table and I would also like to say and I would also like to say that New Abolitionist Radio has been consistently informing you about this convention of states. So Joyanne Reed and all your other favorite hosts on MSNBC, uh, CNN, whoever you like over there, um, that they didn't bring this news to you. Okay. That's right. Uh, like those two, those uh, prosecutors in the Civarello case, there's certain things that they're not allowed to and won't talk about and that being slavery and human trafficking. Uh, Also, the Baltimore police officers found guilty in racketeering uh, in the robbery and gun trace task force corruption case. Uh, That exposes a lot of what's happening all across America. You need to be informed on that case. And look at what they've been doing. At one point, you had cops who were showing off their duffel bags full of black clothing and grappling hooks and tools that they used robberies. These were on-duty policemen. And also North Carolina lawmakers are urging Governor Cooper to bring in the National Guard in order to fill positions as prison guards. Think about that. 
there's a lot to unpack. Good in job, that, North Carolina. Being unconstitutional. Good job, yeah. North Carolina. I am so proud that many of you refused to become prison plantation overseers. Yes. Well, uh, I think that's a hugely unconstitutional incident. And then also, the ACLU finds that courts nationwide ordered consumers to be arrested and jailed at the bidding of private debt collection companies. Wow. Okay, well, that pretty much covers it. Uh, one more thing. There is a letter that came out from the Alabama Free Alabama Movement as well as the Florida organizations that are hosting the prison labor work strikes and they are asking for your support in a boycott. And it is... Um, available also on the BTR community. So that covers all the stories that we couldn't tell today. That leaves us with just our final segments of the evening. Scotty, was there any other stories that you wanted to just point out people might want to check out? Um, no, um, no, sir. Um, again, they could join btrcommunity.com. We have a 30-day free trial period to see if you like it. It works on all devices. Um, and if you decide you want to stay with us, um, it's just $24 a year, but lots of information being shared there. So check me out there. Follow me, BTR News, with Scotty Reed on btrcommunity.com. Hey, Scotty, uh, at some point, give me a call later on. I have some ideas that I'd like to uh, uh, present to you in regard to the BTR community and expanding it. Okay, right, can we so do that tomorrow, bro? Yes, yes, absolutely. All right, let's get into our final segments of the evening, and I have a statement I'd like to read at the end. Uh, let's start with our rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad. Uh, then we'll go into our abolitionist and profile, if you want to cover that, Scotty. Uh, starting with our rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad, today uh, we have Paul Gatling, an 81-year-old Virginia man who was fully exonerated uh, after being wrongfully convicted of a murder in 1964 the year I was born. Gatling spent nine years in prison for the murder of Lawrence Rothbard, a Brooklyn artist in Crown Heights' home, and received a reduced sentence thanks to the Legal Aid Society, but remained a convicted murderer for most of his life. Um, uh, in May of 2016, Gatling was exonerated by a Brooklyn judge at the request of a prosecutor. There's a whole lot of water gone under the bridge, but the bridge is still standing, Gatling said after the proceedings. Two years ago, the retired landscaper contacted his attorney after learning that the Brooklyn District Attorney, rest in peace, Ken Thompson, was offering full exonerations. The Conviction Review Unit looked into his case and determined that Gatling, who was 29 years old at the time, did not receive a fair trial. Paul Gatling repeatedly proclaimed his innocence, even as he faced the death penalty back in the 60s. Thompson said in a statement, uh, the Associated Press reports, he was pressured to plead guilty and, sadly, did not receive a fair trial. These, that exoneration marked the 20th time in two years that the Conviction Review Unit has cleared a wrongfully convicted person in Brooklyn. And we here at New Abolitionist Radio would like to say welcome to freedom, Paul Gatton. Yes, welcome to freedom. Tell you, so many of these victims, that's why, that's why I'm saying... I refuse to be a slave catcher. I refuse to be a prison plantation overseer uh, until they abolish slavery and stop putting people in the prisons. Now, I haven't my, mentally, 
arrived at the place where I'm going to say we need to abolish prisons. They certainly need to be more humane, but I want people like Civarello, uh, kids for cash, people like that. I want them in prison. I want, like that mother said, I, you know, now you go do your time, you know, uh, and, and be accountable for what you did. Indeed, Scotty. Uh, if you would like to uh, handle the uh, abolitionist in profile. Yes, William Cooper Nail is our abolitionist. Yeah, this is actually a speech for him, so you'll be reading this speech. Okay, cool, cool. William Cooper Nail, uh, 1816, uh, transitioned in 1874. Resolve that believing knowledge to be the foundation of a people's prosperity and that through its influence the greatest benefits have been conferred upon mankind we recommend our clergymen and others to urge its importance upon our prescribed and disenfranchised fellow men and to encourage the formation of societies for mental improvement as a direct means of their elevation Mr. Nell said Mr. Chairman in support of this resolution, I beg leave to suggest a few thoughts for the consideration of the convention. It cannot be denied that many of the embarrassments under which we labor may be traced to the indifference manifested by us to the cause of improvement. We have been so long the victims of a wicked prejudice that we have failed to avail ourselves of the means that have been presented to advance our general interests and not have and not have not appreciated the value of knowledge as the cornerstone of those qualifications that serve to render a community prosperous. Though all are willing to admit the truth and force of Lord Bacon's sentiment that knowledge is power, that its possession has conferred the greatest benefits upon mankind, and the want of it is the greatest curse, yet they do not deem it of sufficient importance for them to concentrate their efforts for diffusing its salutary influence. Though the assertion otherwise of all ages and the experience of all past history is confirmation strong that no community can ever be truly be great, powerful or virtuous where the majority are uninterested in the cause of improvement. It will of course be admitted that in no previous age have the opportunities of acquiring knowledge been so numerous as at present. And though we are not yet permitted to bask at pleasure in the full sunshine of literary advantages, yet if we put but improve upon what is at our disposal, the foundation will assuredly be laid for future advancement. It is it's not reasonable to put out our candle and sit still in the dark because we have not the light of sunbeams. We must be a reading people. Our characteristics must be that of a community striving to exert all our energies for improvement. We must remember that by individual efforts, we aid in rearing the temple of our rights. Upon us, the cause of reform has a special claim. Struggling as we are against the withering influence of malignant prejudice, nothing will tend so effectually to ward off its blows and produce the respect due to us as men as the fact of our being engaged in intellectual pursuits. The result of which will be seen in our daily deportment and intercourse with society. It is even now in our power to overleap the barriers that shut us out from enlightened society. 
that are kindred spirits who will welcome us if but earn the right to a place. It is natural that persons of like taste should associate with each other. Let us therefore prove ourselves men in literature, philosophy, science, and the arts, and those who love them will welcome us to their side. There is no portion of the human family doomed by the creator to everlasting seclusion from improvement. Man's avarice, avarice and tyranny has indeed been the means of burying in obscurity the intellect of many of our brethren. But the spark of genius has been kindled by almighty power and will develop itself as truth advances. They shall find the path of knowledge and walk therein. Knowledge is the foundation of a people's prosperity. It indeed opens the avenue through which we must pass to obtain our rights and through its interests may be guarded by foes to our race, though an unholy custom has hitherto compelled us to remain at a distance and persecuted us with a spirit uh, peculiar its own, yet it is our glorious privilege to rise above these difficulties step by step until we make the victory ours. They only are free who will be free. Knowledge will excite in us a spirit of enterprise under the influence of its cheering beings. We shall arise and shake of our fatal uh, lethargy. There will yet be warehouses erected filled with merchandise. The property of colored merchants and over the wide waste of waters will yet be seen the foamy tracks of our gallant barks laden with the produce of other climes. By the acquisition of knowledge, the people will be prepared for an emergency they, that may await them. Whether to escape persecution, we adopt the language of the Greek immigrant, immigrant and seek a land beyond the wave. Where hands and hearts and souls are twined and freedom man and freedom mind, or whether we prefer to remain on the soil that gave us birth and by our devotion to the cause of improvement, our untiring zeal in contending for rights withheld and fidelity to our enslaved brethren, we live down the obstinate prejudice of the age and thereby compel this guilty nation to acknowledge the debt she owes her oppressed sons and daughters. This is William Coopernell at the National Anti-Slavery Standard Black Abolitionist Archives. And we here at New Abolitionist Radio do salute Mr. William Coopernell. Indeed, salute. I'm going to try to uh, start sharing as many of these as I can. Sometimes the only thing we have of these abolitionists is the speeches that they uh, recorded. So uh, it's good to hear these speeches because they apply to today's narrative. And we can see that we have had the desire to create our own industries for the past 400 years. And by no fault of our own, have we not been able to achieve those goals? Right. All you right. know, not to take a dig at anybody, but there was a guest on Tanya Free and Friends, uh, a, a PhD, I, I forget his name, but the write-up that they wrote for him, like he had written a book and, and said, you know, basically saying that uh, you don't have to be white to be successful. And and I would have to read the book, um, but just on face value of what I did read, um, I, when I see black people say things like that, I think that they are delusional and they are not fully recognizing the plight of our brethren 
whether they are enslaved, and I mean our sister in two, but whether they are enslaved or in poverty and to pretend like there isn't institutional and societal discrimination and racism and prejudice that's throwing up uh, uh, obstacles to, to their paths. Are some of us able to overcome them? Most certainly. But the vast majority have not. You know, as they was playing that, that James Brown track, I don't want nobody to give me nothing, just open up the door. Well, again, that's acknowledging that the door is closed for many. Amen, Scotty. There seems to be a pride in a single person achieving success and no concern at all for the people you leave behind. All right. Well, here is our final segment of the evening. It is our uh, segment called For Freedom's Sake, A History of Rebellion. And today we recognize the Barbice Uprising of February 23rd, 1763. Uh, just as an aside, the person who led this revolt is an ancestor of my wife, Tribal Rain. And on Friday in the nation of Guyana, it is a national holiday uh, of what occurred here. Coffee or coffee or coffee died in 1763. Was an Akon man who was captured in his native West Africa and stolen for slavery to work in plantations of the Dutch colony of Berbice in present-day Guyana. He became famous because in 1763, he led a revolt of more than 2,500 enslaved victims against the colonial regime. Today, he is a national hero in Guyana. Kofi, living in Lylenburg, a plantation on the Kanji River, as a house slave for a cooper, barrel maker, an uprising broke out on the Magalanangaburg plantation of the Kanji River in February 1763 and moved on to neighboring plantations, attacking owners. When Governor Van Hagenmine sent military assistance to the re region, the rebellion had reached the Berbice River and was moving steadily towards the Berbice capital, Fort Nassau. They took gunpowder and guns from the attacked plantations. By the 3rd of March, the rebellion were 500 in number. Led by Kosala, they tried to take the brick house of Pier Boone. They agreed to allow the whites to leave the brick house. But as soon as, but as, soon as they left, the rebels killed many and took several prisoners, among them the wife of Beerston plantation owner, whom Cuffey kept as his wife. Cuffey was soon accepted by the rebels as their leader and declared himself governor of Berbice. Doing so, he named Akara as his deputy and tried to establish discipline over the troops. Akabra was skillful in military discipline. They organized the farms in order to provide food supplies. Van Hugenheim committed himself to retake the colony. Akara attacked the whites three times without permission from Cuffey, but they were driven back. Thus began a dispute among the two rebels. On April uh, 2nd of 1763, Cuffey wrote to Van Hugenheim saying that he did not want a war against the whites and proposed a partition of Berbice, with the whites occupying the coastal areas and the blacks the interior. Van Hugenheim delayed his decision, waiting for support from neighboring colonies. Cuffey then ordered his forces to attack the whites on the 13th of May, 1763, but in so doing had many losses. 
the defeat opened a division among the rebels and weakened their organization. Akaro became the leader of a new faction opposed to Cuffy and led to a civil war among themselves. When Akaro won, Cuffy killed himself. And we here at New Abolitionist Radio remember the Berbice Uprising of February 23rd, 1763. Hey, I think that's a different Cuffy than your uh, and then tribal's ancestor. It's a clan. Yeah, okay. it's a clan. Because uh, Paul Cuffy was one of the richest yeah. black men in colonial times. I mean, he was a baller, uh-huh. as they say, and, and, and he used the, the fleet first of black ship. millionaire. Yeah, he used a fleet of ships, you know, in his, uh, um, what would that business be called? Shipping business. He owned several ships, yeah. and they would smuggle victims of slavery from the South to to freedom. Part of the, hey, I, is there even a name for that? The Underground Railroad doesn't apply because that's on water, so, you know. <laughs> Repatriation. All right, Scotty. Well, we've only got a couple minutes left, and I did want to read something short. So uh, any final comments? Yeah, I just want to thank everyone for listening and sharing the information. I thank the callers for for their contributions to the conversation and the historical, um, you know, look back at the Civil War, at Lincoln, at the exception clause. So, you know, just um, uh, glad to have you back as well, Max. And um, hey, to we you know, abolish slavery, uh, we got a lot of work to do. Amen, Scotty. This is something that I wrote uh, in 2015, February 15th. I believe that slavery never ended in the U.S., that the 13th Amendment had an exception clause for no other reason than the transfer ownership and management of human trafficking from the private citizen to federal and state control. I also believe that the birth of privatized prisons and mass incarceration during the decade of 1972 to 82 gave rise to the largest prison population in the world as private citizens were once again allowed to possess ownership of people for profit through prison stocks and jail bonds. I also am firmly convinced that these prisoners are primarily people of color and in particular black Americans who have been criminalized, demonized, and stigmatized. In my perspective, this is real slavery legalized and constitutionally codified, used for population control and a major income source for the entire nation, then presented to the public as normal and acceptable. Those are core beliefs, and none of it is based on religion or spirituality. They are based on years of study and investigation, solidly researched and constantly held out for open challenge. If you don't believe the same things, then odds are much of our differences will stem from that. But if we are in agreement that this evil institution exists and needs to be abolished now, that all our innocent men, women, and children should be released today, then in the spirit of Harriet Tubman, Frederick Douglass, and John Brown, we need you to become a new abolitionist. And we want you to remember this. Abolition is a reason for revolution so we can finally know peace. Peace. Just lift your eyes up. 
Let your wise rise up. See the signs of the times. If it's time, rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up. When famine claims millions, when justice gives blind eyes to billions, when the Lord's anger is no longer feared, if 